0: Amen. Good morning. So, yeah, we're going to begin our uh, series in Ruth, and we're not going to get past the first line of the first verse. Uh, So, the first line of the book of Ruth says, get from Judges to Ruth, the whole line. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. That's it. That's where we're going. So the book of Judges is a helpful context, and there's many important lessons in the book. So if you're in Ruth, just flip one before it. Uh, We're going to look at three selected texts within it. You'll see those in your outline. Um, And so what we're going to do, we're going to take a bit of a field trip on the first day of class. Wouldn't you love to show up to school and you get a a field trip on the first day of class? Well, this is one of those field trips where you get to go see like a battlefield, uh, and you see that... 300,000 people died here. You see the, the, the horrific acts that happened. Why do we go see battlefields? Why do we go see war museums? Because we le- need to learn from the ugliness of our history. We need to learn from the, the, the devastating effects of war and murder and, and slaughter so that we don't repeat it. That's why the book of Judges is in the Bible. So that we learn from these horrible examples and not repeat them. And so the main reason I want to spend a week in Judges uh, is not only because it, because it uh, introduces Ruth, but because it is very much like the time we live in. Uh, as I was gone, Sheree and I spent time reading through Judges and like, man, that could happen today. And this seems familiar and this seems familiar. So not only does it bear a lot of resemblance to the times we live in, but it also bears a resemblance to the weaknesses of our own hearts the book of Judges shows us the condition of the heart of man after the fall. And so while we, we like the notable characters within Judges, we like Deborah and we like Gideon and we like Samson, uh, these are not times or people you want to emulate. You don't, you, you don't want to commend them and you don't want to see them again. This is Israel's Wild West period. Where kind of anything goes. It is a, a, a lawless time with murder and retribution where everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes and where the phrase that is repeated again and again and again throughout the book is, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord. This is a time when war and idolatry and perversion and murder and retribution and, and all kinds of disturbing acts are occurring. And so the famine that Ruth and her family are experiencing, that is just adding salt to the wound. And so where are we in Judges? If you remember, how long did it take Israel to sin after they left Egypt? About five minutes. And they were already creating idols. They were throwing all of the jewelry that they plundered from the Egyptians into the fire. And out popped this calf magically. And so they're not only in the land for five minutes before they are, they are disobeying God again. They have godly leaders like Joshua and Caleb. And they failed to remove the people that the Lord wanted them to remove. They failed to drive out the wicked nations who the Lord knew would corrupt them. So why does this matter? Why does this matter for the book of Ruth? Why does this matter for the book of Judges? Um, i have often commended to you guys, the ESV Study Bible, and I would highly. Uh, I wanted to summarize this quote, but I'm going to read the whole lengthy quote because I think it's really helpful. So if you have the ESV Study Bible, this is in the introduction to Judges uh, on Canaanite culture. Uh, The introduction says this, The major problem for Israel during the period of the Judges was its penchant for turning away from the Lord and turning toward the gods of the Canaanites. What was it about Canaanite religion and culture That proved to be such an irresistible attraction. The land of Canaan was awe-inspiring to the Israelites, as can be seen in the story of the spies who reported on its wealth and strength in Numbers 13. To a recently freed slave people accustomed to the hardships of life in the wilderness, the cosmopolitanism and material wealth of the late Bronze Age Canaan, with its large urban centers, could not have failed to impress this is still the temptation. This side note: it's still the temptation today, right? The, the the large cities where all the material wealth and the cosmopolitanism is, that's usually where the most wickedness is. That's where everyone congregates, and all and most of the sin happens in a nation. The Canaanites were clearly superior to the Israelites on many levels. Remember, the Israelites left Egypt with nothing clothes on their back, and the gold that they turned into into a calf that they had to drink. They had nothing. The Canaanites were clearly superior to the Israelites on many levels, art, literature, architecture, trade, political organization, and more. It is not difficult to see how the Israelites would have been tempted by the elaborate Canaanite religious system, which ostensibly supported and even provided all of this. One prominent feature of Canaanite religion was its highly sexualized orientation. The system of sacred prostitutes, the priestesses of Baal, allowed people to combine sensual pleasures with the worship of Baal. This undoubtedly was attractive to many Israelites, and the Israelites were seduced by the Moabite women in Numbers 25. More on the Moabites when we get into Ruth. Does that kind of set the stage of why God is so concerned with what Israel does when they get in the land? And when they get in the land, there's this, this cycle. They didn't drive out the people. And so here's what happens. The Lord is faithful. He delivers his people. He brings them out of Egypt. The Lord is faithful. He brings them into the land. And what happens when you get in a new house, a new place, and the Lord gives you peace? You get comfortable, and you get complacent. And then you start to get itchy. Like, where can I find some trouble? Where, what, what can I get into? Remember, they didn't drive away the people, so they start to look to the people. They start to look to the pagans. They start to look to the false gods. They begin to do little evil, and little evil turns into medium-sized evil, and medium-sized evil turns into great evil, and they provoke the Lord. And so because they provoke the Lord, they are afflicted. This is a judgment of their own making. They are oppressed by the people. They are forsaken by God, and then they get miserable. And then what do they do? They cry out to God for mercy, and because God is merciful, He sends a deliverer, he sends a judge, and then there's peace. And then what happens? It happens again. And the cycle repeats itself again and again and again. Does this sound familiar? This is the cycle that happens in our own hearts every day. I am ashamed to say how often I have to go through this same cycle. The Lord delivers me from my sin, and I get comfortable. I start to flirt with my sin, and then it gets me into trouble, and then I feel condemned, and then I have to cry out for mercy, and then God is faithful, and then I am not. This is also the, what happens in churches far too often. God blesses and brings people and grows, and then we get comfortable, and then we begin to flirt with the world, and the world influences us, and then we need a little correction, John Calvin had a famous phrase that our hearts are a perpetual forge of idols. You may have heard of perpetual, or an idol factory. There were no factories in Calvin's day. They had forges. You know what a forge is? A forge is a cauldron of hot metal where you burn and, and, and shape something. So a blacksmith, everything he made came out of that, that forge. He would produce horseshoes and uh, armor and swords and all these other things. He would keep producing them. That is the state of our heart. We are idol forges. We make idols according to our own images. We keep producing them like an assembly line. And that's what we see in Judges. In Judges, it continues to get worse. It is a downward spiral. It's like flushing a toilet, and all this stuff goes down and down and down and down. By the time you get to the end, after Samson, you are fully in the sewer. It is a miserable, heartbreaking book, and it is a, less, it is a book that has many lessons for us. We're going to look at three of those this morning. Uh, so we're going to begin in chapter 2. We're going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And the first point will set up the next two. Judges chapter 5, verse 2. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and bore you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is it that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. But they, meaning the nations, shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, would you be with us this morning as we open your word? As we learn from it, as it examines our hearts and leaves us naked and bare before you, Lord, you know all the things that we love more than you. You know all the idols that we have created in our hearts. You know the wickedness that lies within man. Yet, you set your love on us by sending your Son for us. We praise you that our Savior is the answer. To all of our desires, Lord, would your word this morning convict us, and make us miserable in our sin, but then encourage us as we look to Christ. And uh, would your spirit go before me, work in minds and hearts. My words have no effect. There is nothing they can do if your spirit is not working in them. Lord, would you protect your, your people that you would guard us from any wolves and temptations from the culture and idols and other things. Lord, that we would be a people who are holy and pure and devoted to you. And would you continue to bring the lost home, that they would be found and redeemed through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so desire number one, the heart idol number one is the desire to belong. We already read 2, 1 through 5, and what's going on here in chapter 2 is that God makes this explicit commitment, a a, a covenant. I agree. I solemnly swear. You will be my people. I will provide for you. I'm giving you a land. My only provision is that you be totally devoted to me. That you don't chase after other gods, you don't chase after other people. And and because I know how weak you are, because I know how easily tempted you are, I want you to drive them out. I want you to kill them. And Israel failed to drive out the pagans. They failed to kill the enemies of the Lord. Now, at first, this seems very mean. The God that I know, you ever hear people say this? The God that I created for myself, read, my idolatrous God would never do that. My God is a loving God. My God is not a mean and nasty God. But it is precisely because he's loving why he does this. Let me give you an example. Would would you move your family that you love, that you want provided for, that you want safe and cared for, would you move them in a neighborhood full of drug dealers, full of drug users, prostitutes in your front lawn, crime right next door, Wild parties across the street. Blatant perversion everywhere you go. I hope not. You might even be tempted to get all John Wick on them and move them out of the neighborhood. Because if it's them or your family, every time it's going to be your family. How much more a holy and jealous God? How much more a God who wants a people who are holy... Completely set apart to him. A God who loves his people so much that he doesn't want them stained. He doesn't want them tempted. He doesn't want them going after things that will kill them. This is exactly what a loving God does. He drives out all the boogeymen from his kids' closets. And the real ones that are lying in the bed waiting for them. This is a land of perpetual evil. You read about the Canaanite practices, child sacrifice, murder and torture were common. And sexual perversion would make a lot of our culture blush. This is why God wanted to protect and drive his people out. Excuse me, those people out. But because they didn't, there are two uh, consequences here. Number one, they shall become thorns in your side. The little thorn that just continues to bother you. You ever accidentally touched a cactus? Those little spines with a barb on the end that get stuck in your skin, especially the small ones like, like we have here in, in Florida. You accidentally brush against one or, or pick one up. You forget you have the spine there until something brushes against it. And it, and it, and it feels like fire on your hand. And you you got you to gotta drive yourself crazy trying to pull that little spine out. It burns. It irritates. Flirting with sin is much like petting a cactus. Initially, it sounds like a good idea. But when you do, you will feel the consequences, and it leaves its mark in you. And if you don't pull every one of them out, even one little spine will irritate you and follow you and hold on to you. This is exactly what Israel was doing. They were flirting with sinful people. And here's what happens. We've all experienced this. When you have friends who are sinful and enticing and they, 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 they make uh, indulging yourself look fun, what happens? It makes their actions seem normal. We've all had those friends. Maybe we've been those friends. The troublemaker. I, mean, you didn't, I didn't think about doing this until they brought it up. The liar. Well, we can lie about this and it'll make it easy on ourselves. Lie, it's fun. The thief. I'll tell you a true story. Um, I learned how to shoplift from a kid in youth group. Uh, This is a true story. I I didn't realize that was a thing, but he's like, you can get free candy. Okay, I'll tell you the story about how that ended up later. It did not end up well, uh, as, as it shouldn't. But we have those friends, the gossipers, the thieves, the drinkers. They normalize sinful behavior, and God knows the temptation for his people. Because let's be honest, we have enough problem within our own hearts. I've got enough of my own sin to deal with. I don't need help from anyone else to, to, to lead me to sin. So they could be a thorn, and if you don't drive out the people, their gods will become a snare. And so uh, we know what a, what a snare is. We've talked a lot about it when we are in First and Second Timothy. Um, creating and worshiping idols... It's like filling your kitchen floor with mouse traps and assuming that if you walk in the middle of the night, you're, you're not going to step on one. But creating your own idols is even worse. It's like a mouse setting his own trap with his favorite bait, thinking that he won't go for it in his lapse of judgment. Because the gods of the nations, like every god of human making, they're tempting. Why? Because they promise to meet Israel's needs. Just like the false gods promised to meet our needs. Israel was an agrarian society. They needed rain. They wanted harvest. Baal promised that. They also liked sex. Baal promised that. They wanted wealth and power and victory. They had a God for every one of those things. We don't worship statues anymore. We don't go to Asherah poles. But we build statues in our hearts. We've got that idol factory that is cranking out idols, the fords that is building them. That, that factory is, is working. What do I mean? We pursue self-gratification. Our lives revolve around us. My greatest idol is me. I want my comfort. I want my ambition, what my pride, what, what, what my greed, what my insecurity, what my doubt wants. Those are the idols I create. I don't create your idols. I create my idols. I don't build them outside. I wouldn't let you see them, but I craft them in my heart. And that can become a snare because they lure us away because they're our own desires. Here's what James says in James chapter 1. Right at the beginning of James, speaking to a church that's got a lot of issues, He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, here's something that you need to understand. God tests his people. This word here is also a word that is is tied to the forge, The, the refinement of the fire. God puts you in the fire. He knows what you're made of so that you know what you're made of. And what the fire does, it also refines and burns off what is unnatural, the, uh, the the dross and impurities about you. God does that, so you'll receive a crown. But don't confuse that with temptation. Verse thirteen: Let no one say when he is tempted, "I am being tempted by God." God tests, but he does not tempt. He himself tempts no one, and God cannot be tempted with evil. But each person is tempted when he is, lured and, enticed by his, when he is um, lured and enticed by his own desires. The temptation begins with us. There is nothing that tempts us that doesn't begin in our own heart. There are certain things that just don't tempt me because I don't care about them. But what tempts me is the stuff that I love. And it is our own desires. When that desire is conceived, this is birthing language. When you come together and you get in bed with your own desires, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Israel, be, care of these, be careful of these snares, because the desire turns to sin, and sin turns to death, and we see this all throughout Israel's history. Because The problem with idols is that they train us to look to them for hope and salvation and not the Lord. They train our hearts to love them, to pursue them, to want them. Remember what Jesus told us. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better to go into hell with only one hand than to hold on to that sinful hand that you love so much. And that is figurative, of course. But if it's literal, go for it. I love you that much. And if evil people or desires hold us. If they have our heart better than them ensnaring us, drive them away completely. Don't leave your favorite idol. We love to do that, right? We clean out everything except the idol we really love. And that was the problem with Israel. Because even one trap with our favorite bait in it is still a trap. And even though we know it's a trap, we go for it. Israel failed to hold each other accountable when they, were, when, they, when they were tempted. They failed to worship God and God alone. So for believers in uh, Colossians 3, we read this several times in our Revelation study because we're reminded to look to the Lord, to look who, to the Lord who is in heaven. But we didn't read to verse 5. Colossians 3 verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Yes and amen. We look forward to that. But until then, put to death therefore. The therefore points to what was right before it. Therefore, since you are in Christ, since you look to him, put to death. What he died on the cross for. Put to death what is, the, what is his enemy. What is earthly in you. The things of the Canaanite nations. These, it, this is a description of the Canaanite nations and the nations around us. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It goes on to say, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Put them away, people of God. God made a covenant with Israel that they couldn't keep. This is why they needed a new covenant. This is why they needed a Savior who could keep the covenant they they couldn't. This is why they needed the, the Holy Spirit who would sanctify them from the inside out. You know what the Spirit does? He methodically drives out the idols of our hearts. That's what Israel was supposed to be doing when they went into Canaan to tear down the places of worship to remove all the pagan people. That's what sanctification is. The spirit working in us to drive out the false idols of our hearts. To drive out the the, the gods that we worship and, and pursue so that we look more and more like our God. More and more set apart. All right, That was number one. The desire to belong. Desire number two. The desire to be led. Let's turn to chapter eight. One of the favorite characters and Judges is uh, Gideon. It's kind of like the anti-hero. Uh, many of the heroes in the Bible are anti-heroes. Uh, Gideon does some amazing things, even though he is the least amazing hero in the Bible, I think. Um, but he didn't end well. But notice, the Lord, they, they cry out to the Lord for help. The Lord sends Gideon. Gideon leads them into battle. Drives away the Midianites. And then, here's how the people of the land respond. Judges chapter 8, verse 22. Then the the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Man, isn't that such a natural human desire? Which one of these guys is going to be our king? Which one of these guys is going to be our savior? Who can I look to? Who looks like me that will lead me? Who will be my savior? Which one among you? Gideon wisely responds, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Why do we do that? Why do we, why do we hold up men like that? Because we fail to look to the Lord first. The word savior or saved comes up often in Judges. The Lord raises up saviors, deliverers, for a time throughout the book and throughout the history of Israel. This is not the problem. The Lord raised them up to save the people. The problem is what we saw back in chapter 2. We read this earlier. Chapter 2, verse 16. Here's a summary of the book. The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the, hand of the uh, hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who had afflicted and oppressed them. Here's the problem with the judges and the kings of Israel. They may save them for a time, but they needed to be saved again and again and again. And what did their great savior Gideon do? The man who they wanted to rule over them? Five verses later, verse 27. And Gideon made an ephod, a little idol, out of the gold that they plundered from their enemies. And he put it in his city, in Ophrah, and all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Gideon is a microcosm of the book of Judges. The Lord will rule over you. Trust the Lord and my little statue. And it became a snare to him, and it only gets worse, because after that they... Uh, turned on Gideon and his family, and they completely became idolatrous. Down the bowl they swirl. Israel, like Christians, like churches, like nations, they need godly leaders. There's nothing wrong with godly leaders until you place a king or a savior you've made above the king of kings and the savior of the world. Now you've created a heart idol. Now you're putting in trust, your trust in someone who cannot save you, because any power a king or a judge has comes from the Lord. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a great illustration for this in in Mere Christianity. Um, A quote from the book will be on the screen. A car is made to run on gasoline. It would not properly run on anything else. Likewise, God has designed the human machine to run on himself. He... Is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, there is no other. I love that, that comparison. Just like we design cars in a specific way, this can run on fuel, on gasoline only. You put anything else in there, it might sputter a little bit, it'll either blow up or just stop. How true is that? When we try to live for someone other than the Lord, it's like putting a wrong, the wrong fuel in an engine. It may spark, it may, it may sputter, it may limp down the road, but it can't drive. It it won't run like it's supposed to. It can't, it won't. But the fuel we need is the living God. He designed us in his image to worship him and to follow him and when we do, we can run. We can fly on wings like eagles because he carries us. We are designed to worship him with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength. Israel had an immediate need. They needed to be saved. They needed someone to rise up from among the people. They just forgot what the fuel was. It's okay if someone's, if someone's driving, but you can't put improper fuel in. They, they needed someone from among their people to deliver them from, the, from their enemies, from their poverty, from their, their hunger. Ruth is a prime example. This is why Israel needed an ultimate savior, an ultimate kinsman redeemer, one who was from the line of Judah to rule over them as king. They needed to look at someone who looked like them. They needed one of their own people. This is the point of Matthew's genealogy, to show that Jesus came from the line of David so that he could be the rightful king of Judah. This is why we need an ultimate kinsman redeemer. We need one from the line of Adam, who will rule over all mankind as king. This is the point of the genealogy of the book of Luke, to show that Jesus came from Adam, the son of God. That's why we need a kinsman redeemer. We need a true savior. Gideon will fail. Samson failed. David failed. Solomon failed. And on and on and on again. There is a kinsman redeemer who does not fail. Son of God, son of man. Every shadow that Judges points to is looking to the substance that would come one day. And that leads us to our third and final desire. The desire to be loved. Now, let's go, Samson. Uh, if you know the story of, of Samson, Samson's kryptonite is women. Uh, from the very beginning, he does not have a healthy relationship with, with, with women. He doesn't listen to his mother, and then, uh, yeah, his testosterone just, just, just takes over. It's been his weakness all along. But I want to bring you to kind of the culmination of his interaction with, with Delilah. I thought this is fascinating. It tells us so much about the human heart and our heart. Uh, This is Judges chapter 16, beginning in verse 15. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of of Samson, three times already, this is now the fourth. Samson, God has has given Samson this amazing strength. And he destroys whole armies with like the the jawbone of a donkey. And he he, he catches 300 foxes in an afternoon. I don't know how you do that. Ties foxes' tails together. I don't know how you do that. And sets the tails on fire and burns down whole cities. This guy's incredible. And he's got this strength that the Lord has given him. But the Lord gave him, gave a vow to his parents. Don't cut your hair. Take a Nazarite vow. Don't drink anything. Don't touch anything that's dead. And this power, this strength will remain with you. And then he meets a girl. A Philistine girl. Who is more loyal to her nation than she is to her husband. She knows he has this great strength. She knows he has a weakness. And three times, she says, tell me the source of your great strength. And every time, she tries to do what he told her to do. Binds him up three different times, three different ways. And every time, he breaks out. What did he think was going to happen the fourth time? Sorry, men. this This is us. Here's where we are in the fourth time. But notice what happens in verse 15. And she said to him, How can you say, I love you when your heart is not with me? Ooh, she knew what she was doing. You mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And then she pressed him hard with her words day after day. I'm not saying this still happens, but men, we understand the pressure. And urged him, and his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart. And he said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. The root of Samson's problem is the root of the problem of Judges is the root of the problem of Israel, is the root of the problem of humanity. Sin wants our heart and we just want to be loved. So we give our heart. Sin nags. Proverbs has a lot to say about nagging wives. And she nagged him day after day until he finally gives up. His, his soul is vexed unto death and he gives her, verse 17, all his heart. She begins, She already was his idol, but she drove him to worship her. Samson failed where Israel failed, giving his heart to what would ultimately destroy him, giving his heart to what seeks to kill him. And then later on in verse 20, the Lord left him. This is the human condition. Sin, the desires of our heart, the desire to be loved day after day. Love me. Give up everything for me. Love me. Even though time and time again I have showed you I hate you. And I want you to die. And all of my cousins and all of my my big redneck buddies are outside ready to to tie you up and kill you. But trust me this time. I didn't mean the last ones. We are to love the Lord our God with all our hearts. But man, our heart is fickle. Our heart goes after every other thing. How long did did we make it in the Bible? Chapter 3? Get to Genesis chapter 3? Satan showed us how easy we could be led astray. How quickly we could be derailed. All Satan had to do was to appeal to Eve's love of herself. And then Adam's failure to lead his wife and his love of his wife And the whole world falls into sin. So here's some application for us. Men, we are wired for the respect of a woman. We want her to be happy. We want her to be comfortable. We don't want our wives to be uncomfortable or to complain. But we also want peace and quiet. And we are easily influenced. Thanks a lot, Adam. Women. You are wired to be loved and protected and valued by a man. But the fall has so distorted that that you want to control him and you want to lead him. Thanks, Eve. So for us, what rules in our heart will rule over us. What rules in our heart will rule over us. Samson let Delilah rule in his heart. He gave all of his heart. He held nothing back and he had nothing for the Lord. When in fact, we are to give all of our heart to the Lord. This is why we need a new heart. This is why Ezekiel tells us our heart of stone won't cut it, because our heart of stone only serves us. A dead heart only pumps dead desires. We need a new heart heart of flesh. pumps the bread of life, the blood of Christ, a river of living water. And thankfully, Samson failed and everyone else before him failed because Adam failed. But we have a second Adam. While he was tempted, he never sinned because his heart was pure. So when we remember the gospel, we absolutely remember the forgiveness of sin at the cross. But you know what people need to hear? Every one of us has a deep desire to be loved. Don't forget that part of the gospel. There's a reason why everyone loves John 3:16. There is a deep desire in every one of us to belong, to be led and to be loved. People need to hear that. Sometimes we need the law, absolutely. But most people are broken and lonely. And they need to be loved. And there is no greater love than the Father sending the Son. There is no greater love than the Son laying down his life voluntarily so that he would save a people for himself, a bride worthy of his own affection. There is no greater love than a spirit sealing and protecting a people who would be presented before the Son This is the most pure and perfect love we will ever know. And this can only be known from a new heart. Out of a new birth. Because as we've already seen, our heart, we can't trust it. It is wicked above all things. Believers who have undergone the new birth, our hearts still pump idols. Imagine if that's all it can do. So if that is you today. If you have to really ask yourself what you serve, what you worship, what you long after. You need a new heart. You need to be born again because you can't save you. No man can save you. No idol can save you. There is only one who can save you. They all failed to point to Christ so that he would succeed. And the gospel answers our questions to our desire to belong, to be led, and to be loved. So, in, in conclusion, everything we've seen in these three examples are all found in our kinsman Redeemer. He is one who, like us, God in the flesh, came to do what we could not do, live the life we could not live, die the death we deserve to die, to redeem a people who had nowhere to go. Nothing to their name, no hope in and of themselves, and to give them abundantly out of his riches because he loves them. So, practically, what do we do with a book like Judges? What do we do in 2023 when we look around the world as the way it is and we think, man, God, I don't know what you're doing, but it kind of seems like you're uh, taking a nap because it seems pretty crazy out there right now. Fear not, little children. Because the Lord uses the wicked times of the judges and 2023 to show people the futility of adultery, idolatry and adultery. But he uses the wickedness and the affliction and the oppression of the world to make people cry out for mercy. Let's think about it. In our own lives, when is it that we cry out to God? Is it when we're comfortable and we have everything we need? Nope, that's when we depend on ourselves. When are we most likely to be on our knees in tears, pleading with the Lord? When we're afflicted, when we're miserable, when things are not going the way we think they should. So when you look around the world and you begin to fret like, I don't know what's happening here. You may want to ask yourself if you're looking for hope in the world. Because just like in the time of judges, God is making people miserable in their sins so they will cry out to him. So they will receive mercy from him. He is always doing it, and he is doing it right now. He is doing it today. Because what we don't want to admit is that the times of peace and complacency and comfort, that is prime soil for idolatry. Because we got nothing better to do than to sit back, relax, and think about us. But when we get our comfort taken away, we have nowhere else to run, that is when we cry out to the Lord, and that is when we know what, who truly saves us and what true worship is. So uh, in the weeks to come in Ruth, the Lord raises another deliverer, and this deliverer, Boaz, he saves his people for a time, but what I love about the book of Ruth and why I wanted to go through Ruth is because he uses this man and this time to make way for the final the final kinsman redeemer, redeemer, the savior of his people and every tongue, tribe, and nation out of the people of Ruth, a Moabite half-breed born out of sexual immorality who led God's people astray. And through this wicked time, God is preparing a young woman through whom he would send his son. And our kinsman Redeemer, He gives us a people and a place to belong. He is the one true God. Through our kinsman Redeemer, He will remove all idols from our hearts on the final day, and we will be with Him forever when there will be no more thorns, no more snares, no more temptation. That is our kinsman Redeemer. He is also a good judge and great King. And he leads us in righteousness and he promises that we will be led in righteousness forever because he does not change yesterday, today, forever. That is our kinsman redeemer. He also gives us new life and a new heart. He gives us our desire to be loved and he showed us what love is. Because there is no greater love than a man lay down his life for his friends. There is no greater love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the temptation. That is our kinsman redeemer. Don't look at the book of Judges. Don't read the scriptures and assume, man, those guys were pretty wicked. Aren't I great? The book of Judges is to remind us that that is every one of us. That is the desire that exists within our hearts. And no man... No empty religion, no idols can save, but there is one who can save. And there is one who they look forward to and did not know, but we know. We know the true kinsman redeemer. The one who brings us in to belong, the one who leads us in righteousness, and the one who will love us forever. And I hope that's what we'll see in our series in Ruth. And so, in the next few moments, I'm going to let you uh, prepare to remember him at the table. Give you some time in your seats to prepare your hearts. This is, a, this is a meal for the people of God, a people of the new birth, a people whose heart idols have been put to death and are continually being put to death by the Spirit. This is a victorious meal that reminds us that our God has been victorious over our sin. I'll give you a few, few moments and then we'll go to the table together.